Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. Um, Okay, folks, I think everybody is back from the, the bar now, so if we could get going again, please. Okay, so our second reader tonight is making a return visit to Fringe. Yeah, I'm having to crouch because Tom has resized the microphone to be Lucy-sized. But <laughs> guests definitely come first, and I'm happy to do it because I don't have to stand up here for very long. All I have to do is make introductions, which I could do quicker if you folks were to stop snarking at me. <laughs> However, <laughs> all right, let Tom take the embarrassing photograph. <laughs> Okay, so our second reader tonight is a return visitor to Bristol Con Fringe, and her latest novel, Heartland, is published this very week. So congratulations, a big warm welcome for Lucy Hansen. Um, So, yeah, rather embarrassingly, I read from Heartland last year, so I'm going to have to be choosing a a different section uh, in case anyone recognises the section I've read all the time. Um, So, a little tiny, tiny bit of setup. Um, This uh, chapter takes place from the point of view of one of my main characters called Charlesco, um, who is a slaver. He works kind of as a a guard for a slaving caravan in a desert called the Beaches. And he and his kind of adoptive mother, Ma, who's a mercenary, that they both uh, work as a guard on this caravan. But of course, they're both very much involved in the slaving business. Uh, And this scene is the slave auction. uh, And it's the last ever auction Char thinks he will attend um, because he and Ma are planning to escape tonight. The Arles arrived at dawn. As Char had guessed, Rogan and Alder were among them, accompanied by two more dressed lavishly for the desert. New money, Rogan said disdainfully, in a voice he didn't bother to lower. He was a handsome man, as far as Char was any judge of it, swarthy-skinned and just approaching his middle years. He owed his wealth to a dozen mines situated north to the city of Simenza. His friend, Arl Alder, was perhaps ten years Rogan's senior, and the two had a long-standing partnership. Rogan's mines supplied the ore for Alder's smiths, and it was Alder's practice of staffing his smithies exclusively with women that ensured Genji's caravan a regular income. Alder and I were talking shop, Rogan said. He jerked his thumb at the overdressed strangers. Unfortunately, they heard... Wish we'd been more circumspect. I won't tolerate being outbid, of course, but they're a little too free with their ken. Which means money. Char nodded absently, his mind still reeling with the events of last night and the plans he and Ma had made for this evening. He couldn't quite believe this would be his last ever auction. How goes it with you, Char? Rogan asked as they watched Alder inspecting the two girls. The sisters stood beside their cages, and it was only the chains on their wrists and ankles that gave them away as slaves. Dressed as they were in simple flax, they could have passed for townswomen out on some errand. It took a moment for Rogan's question to register. All right, Arl, Char answered blandly, looking forward to some time in Arrow. 
You men always are, Rogan said. I spotted the brothers there last night. The Black Bazaar had left Wren and Tunza hollow-eyed. Char suspected they'd smoked a good deal of their wages away. Genj threw them dirty looks between the smiles he reserved for his customers. I'll be bidding, Master Genge, Alder announced, his eyes flicking briefly to the two new owls hovering off to one side. These are well up to your usual excellent standard. The blue-eyed girl opened her mouth as if to speak, but Ma was suddenly at her shoulder and she seemed to think better of it. Once Alder and Rogan were gone, the new money owls who'd hovered on the sidelines approached Genge. Although Char was busy setting up for the auction, he didn't fail to notice Genji's look of interest or the way both Arles glanced at the girls. It seemed Alder might have competition. When finally the men left too, Char found himself working to the tune of Genji's whistling. The slave master only whistled when in the very best of moods. Ma had noticed too. I don't like those men she said to Char as he unpacked the portable stage they used for auctions. I wouldn't be surprised if they're scouting for brothel girls. If they offer more than Alder, and I expect them to, then Genj will sell. Well, why wouldn't he? Char replied, securing one of the stage's struts. That's the point of an auction. He knew he'd angered her by her intake of breath and the way her shoulders hunched. I don't want the girls to go to them, Ma said. Alder will work them hard, but fairly. Smithing's a decent trade. She paused. No woman should be forced to lie with a man. Char glanced round. It's still slavery, Ma. What difference does it make where the girls end up? It makes a difference, Ma said, her expression hardening. And I brought you up to realise it. The hypocrisy of the situation grated on Char. Anger prickled. He dropped the hammer in the sand and turned to face her. Those girls hate you, he said. They hate me. Give them knives and they'd slit our throats and they'd be right to do it. He could hear the rage in his voice, bubbling, barely controlled. We are the monsters, Ma, not the Arles, not the pimps. It's us. We make this happen. He swept an encompassing arm at the caravan. All of this. Who brought the girls here to be haggled over? Who takes their cut of Ken after market? If the girls are sold into whoring, it's our fault. It's your fault. She hit him, a swift slap to the cheek. Char didn't flinch. He'd expected it. He bent and retrieved the hammer from the sand. Don't lie to yourself, Ma, he said, his anger beginning to fade under the sting of his own words. This is the life you chose. Her sandaled feet moved off softly through the sand and Char returned to his work. There was much still to do. It was auction day. 100 Red Ken, do I have 150? Look at the fat on him, someone shouted. Genj turned towards the voice, which is why he's worth 150. For the next few months at least, he's his own food. There were snorts of laughter, and though his eyes were wide with fear, the pudgy man from the Hosen Swamps tried to tug his tunic further down his exposed belly. Char had positioned himself to the left of the auction stage, opposite Wren and Tunza, who stood at evenly spaced intervals. He kept his weapons on full view, alongside a trio of knives stuck brazenly into his belt. The blades were only there for show, since some didn't see his Kali sticks as weapons. This part of his job was simple. Discourage trouble. 
He's a hooch brewer and a spiller of secrets. Tickle him with a knife and all sorts of information comes tumbling out. Information you'll no doubt find a use for. He was a local of the Hosen Swamps, an area notoriously difficult to penetrate. Genge made an aside to the audience, but his voice was loud enough to carry. And once you've milked him dry, he's a houseboy in the making. More laughter. So do I have one for 50, sirs? Genge shouted. 150! Genge graciously acknowledged the bid, his eyes raking the crowd. 200? 200, another voice echoed, and Char was surprised to hear it was Rogan's. 250? Silence. Do I have 250? Genge asked again. His forehead wrinkled into an expression Char knew well. The slave master realised he'd get no more. Going once? Going twice? He let the phrase hang in the air, holding out for a bid that wouldn't come. Sold, Genge said, with that wrinkle of disappointment creasing his brow. Char smiled to himself, recalling his words to the hosener a couple of days back. So the man really was worth only 200 red ken. Ma wove through the crowd, ready to take Rogan's deposit, while Hake picked up the hosener's chain and led him whimpering off the platform. He returned with the two girls. Unlike the fat man, they fought tooth and nail to escape. Char noticed the extra and unnecessary chain that passed through the manacles on their wrists and ankles, linking them together. Each wore a slave collar, trailing more chain, which Hake secured to rings at the back of the stage. The mood of the crowd changed as both girls struggled. Genji's manservant calmly finished tethering them and then retreated to stand at the edge of the platform. Gazing out at the gathered people, Char noticed the ugly shine in some men's eyes and narrowed his own. Auctions always drew a crowd. They came for the show and, by fighting, the girls were giving them one. The elder sister who'd spat at Char the other day was pretty, with brown hair that tried to free itself of the tight plait Ma had secured it in. Although her teeth were bared in a snarl, her blue eyes were fearful, and she kept darting worried glances at her younger sibling, whose cheeks were wet with tears. Char looked quickly away, their plight waking the anger he constantly strove to bury. No, he thought, trying to tamp down the rage before it became a torch. Not here, not now. Genji's frown had disappeared, and he practically beamed at the girls before turning his to face his audience. Char loosened the sticks in their sheaths. This could get nasty. Sisters, Genji said. The youngest, no more than 16. Healthy, strong, and because I'm a kind-hearted bastard, selling as a pair. There were leers and shouts from the crowd. Char caught Ma's eye. She'd moved back to get a clearer view of the audience. He spotted Alder and the two new Isles, their faces alight with the thrill of the auction. For such fine creatures, I'm opening the bidding at 300 red ken, Genj said, and Char knew from the low starting bid that the slave master expected to make a lot of money. On cue, Alder said, 350, 400, one of the new Isles countered, 450, 5, 550, Genge didn't have to say a word. Alder was glaring at the Arl bidding against him, and the man smiled back serenely. The crowd had hushed to better hear the battle. Six hundred, Alder said. Seven, the other Arl countered, and Alder's face tightened. Char saw Rogan put a hand on his arm. Seven hundred and twenty-five, Alder said, with more than a hint of sourness. Eight hundred, 
Genj was beside himself with glee. He looked at Alder. Do I have 850? You do, Alder said fiercely, his face a thundercloud. Genj gave him a gracious nod. 900? the slave master asked, with a glance at the other owl. Char watched Ma's gloved hands curl into fists. Her eyes were fixed and steely. If looks were blows, the owl would be pulp on the sand. One hundred, the owl said. Clearly confused, Genj opened his mouth, but before he could speak, the owl added, Black Ken. The crowd gasped, and Genj looked as if someone had struck him a blow to the head. Black, he said stupidly. Char stared at the Jarl, unable to believe his ears, and the distraction cost him his concentration. His grip on the rage that seemed to burn in his very soul slipped. He lunged for it, struggling to stay calm, but the fight was harder than it had ever been. Char stood stone still, but inside it felt as if he were being flung back and forth by a hurricane, a wind that tasted of fire. Sweat beaded his face. Black the Arl confirmed, with a nasty glance at Alder, who stood aghast. Even the girls had ceased their struggles to watch. Mutters stirred the crowd like a wind over loose sand. A bluff, one man said loudly. No one has that kind of ken to spend on slaves. In answer, the Arl reached into a bag held by his companion and pulled out a small canvas sack. Untying the string that bound its neck, he tipped out a few small stones. Necks craned for a better look, and there was a collective intake of breath. Through gritted teeth and watering eyes, Char stared at the little stones that lay like pieces of night on the Jarl's palm. Genj finally found his voice. Arl Alder, do you stand by your bid? Alder's face had paled at the sight of the sack and he was sweating. I do, he declared after a moment. 850 red ken is my final offer. And you, sir? Genj asked the other Arl. My bid stands, the man answered, shifting the stones on his palm. One hundred black ken. If you fail to produce the full hundred, the auction goes to Arl Alder, Genj said, and the man acknowledged the words with a flippant gesture. Going once? Ma's face was as cold as a desert night. Char gazed at her dark, chiselled features, willing that serenity into himself. The owl with the black hen licked his lips, and Char couldn't help but glance at the girls again. They were both openly sobbing now, and the rage was a red-hot fire inside him. Going twice? No one interrupted, and Genj opened his mouth to declare the sale, but at that moment the owl's sack split, spilling its black bounty over the sand. Distraction punctured the growing tension like an overfull water skin, and Char found the rage seeping out of him. As it went, it left his insides stinging like slapped flesh. Ma was no longer in his line of sight. After a few seconds of searching, he spotted her on the other side of the crowd, towards the back. How had she managed to get over there so quickly? The slave master paused as the Arl bent down and hurriedly began scooping up handfuls of Ken. One had rolled a little distance away from the others. As the Arl reached for it, the sun came out from behind the cloud, turning the sands white under its glare. A hush fell over the scene. Half of the stray stone gleamed red. The Arl ought to have used a better die, Char thought, as furious shouts erupted from the crowd. A trick, one man cried unnecessarily, for they'd all seen the stone. 
The Earl straightened and began to back away, but the crowd closed up around him. Those who lived in the Black Bazaar might be the dregs of Acre, but they had their own kind of honour. The Earl's companion was busy arranging his face into an expression of incredulity, but he needn't have bothered. The crowd only had eyes for the cheating Earl. As the atmosphere grew uglier, Char watched the man slip away. It seemed friendship only went so far. Well, thank you very much, Lucy, if you'd like to. So, um, where are we with uh, the books now? Is this number three? This is number two, book two. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was meant to be out last year, but they um, delayed it so they could redesign the covers and the series. So, uh, now they all look very beautiful. Um, one and two are out now, or Thursday, and number three is out in December. Yeah, I must admit, that's a splendid redesign job that they've done there. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a hard job, isn't it, to, to get a cover that's going to stand out, which you, as, as a bookseller as well, would, would presumably be well aware of. Yes. Um, I did like my, my old cover, but it wasn't really doing the job. Um, and I think these are much more striking. Um, and I think they're, you know, going to... I don't know, I think people maybe have less prejudices when picking, picking up a book with a kind of symbol on the front rather than a book with a woman with her hair blowing in the wind which is quite girly and my books aren't really that girly so I had a few issues with that. <laughs> yeah that come, comes back to this whole question I guess of how women writers books are received in the market doesn't it? That, uh, and Juliet McKenna has a whole essay about the, the position of uh, women in the in the market in the, that new book that came out at Wilcom, which I shall be talking about more. But um, from from your point of view, as as somebody who works in a, a major bookseller, is is there a, a real issue with with how people pick up books off the shelf? Um, yes, a big issue um, because uh, when you walk into a bookshop, um, you're just competing for for space. Really, um, there's so many many authors that. You know, especially in science fiction and fantasy, and a lot of bookshops don't have a huge section set aside for genre. So what there is, um, you know, we often in Waterstones tend to get um, the very popular books in bulk. Uh, so we have <laughs> Drowning in Game of Thrones all the time. So of course the only place to put those are on tables. So you often find um, very popular books or new books like yeah, Game of Thrones, you know, stacked in very high piles on the tables, which means that you know lesser known books don't really make it into a, a, a kind of read line of sight uh, and I, I think putting that aside um, you know if, if a book isn't attention grabbing like if it doesn't have if it, or if the cover is saying something different to what the book is actually about well you've kind of lost the battle before you've even begun so I think having a cover that that doesn't put people off straight away is, is like a really important thing I know they say don't judge a book by its cover but you know people do <laughs> naturally now, um, you, you were talking about your books not being particularly girly. Obviously, the fantasy market is, is very crowded. There are people like George Martin and Joe Abercrombie who have this reputation of, of doing very, very grim stuff. And we, we've got Anna Smith-Spark coming next month who will be doing very, very grim stuff as well. Now, the, the, obviously, there's the option of, of doing straight-up romance, which will appeal presumably to a more female market. Um, it sounds like you're trying to do something different and perhaps having a, a little bit of social conscience in there. Okay, so um, I feel in a way that I'm 10 years too late to the party uh, because these, this series of books um, was hugely inspired by things like The Wheel of Time and David Eddings. Um, what used to be called fantasy but is now 
nothing is now light fantasy because grimdark is uh, is is so much in the ascendant that grimdark has now replaced the the you know if you say fantasy people think grimdark um, and which is very irritating for an epic fantasy writer like me who isn't I don't, I don't classify my books as grimdark they're simply in the same style as you know you know the well, I was Shinara, but they're not like there's no elves in them. But you know the light fantasy. Um, God, no, thank God. Uh, and um, you know, I just think it's you know, what is grimdark. I suppose you have to just say, well, maybe it's lots of battles and fighting and gratuitous violence. In which case, you know, well, I don't. I, don't, I say I have gratuitous violence, but I do have plenty of battles. So it's really hard to put your finger on what exactly that is. But I found it very, very difficult now because with the growth of YA on one side and the growth of grimdark on the other. Adult light fantasy doesn't seem to have a place anymore. Um, when it used to be everything, when it used to be all of the you know people in my generation have grown up reading the same books that I read, which were mostly written in the 80s, um, and I feel like you know I'm that's kind of what I've based my trilogy on, throwing in a few twists like more female characters, more characters with agency, um, just a few things that I think you know more. It's a genre that does need modernising. Um, but I found that that's quite difficult to get people to kind of understand that it isn't YA. Um, because it, it often gets labelled as YA, I think because of the age of the protagonist. But I always like to say to people that, you know, Trudy Canavan and, you know, has a, had a character who started off as, like, 13. And Garion in the Bulgarian starts off at, like nine or something so but they're never ever classed as YA books um, so I think this is a new phenomenon that the, the genre has kind of like moved <laughs> uh, interestingly I think there was a panel at Worldcon titled something like is epic fantasy still relevant yeah well it's a good question um Grimdark is epic fantasy. I mean, it's pretty epic. I know it can be quite gritty and post-apocalyptic um, in places, but I think it's, it still is. And I think um, if, if, if epic fantasy wasn't still relevant, people wouldn't be so keen on Game of Thrones because that is one of the most epic fantasies that's ever been written, um, even though it has such a quite a strong kind of historical context. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's still very much a market out there for high fantasy and, and epic fantasy. I just think that the... The, the focus is slightly shifted and I think maybe that was because everyone got a bit tired of the, you know, like the Garians of this world where, you know, and, and all of the, the kind of Lord of the Rings spin-offs where, you know, that the heroes were whiter than white. Um, they, they never had any bad traits. You know, the villains were, you know, villainous. Uh, I think that's probably the way the roots of Grimdark lie in the fact that we wanted to see more characters with a, a much wider spectrum of um, personality. Um, and I think that's, and that's great. And I have no, you know, because I'd like to think that my characters are quite, you know, have a, quite a wide spectrum of personality too. Um, I just think that it's a shame that we kind of leaving some of the lighter stuff behind in a way because I think that I prefer to read this kind of fantasy otherwise I probably wouldn't write it so well fair enough you know you you, you write what you enjoy and and <laughs> otherwise it, it's not going to work right so anyway just moving on from that uh, we we mentioned Emma and Pete's Hugo win for their podcast uh, earlier but they're by no means the only people from uh, these parts who produce a podcast I I understand there's something about a glass slipper would, would you like to explain um yes yeah, so um 
I run a podcast with uh, two other women, um, Megan and Charlotte, called Breaking the Glass Slipper, which was um, Megan's brainchild, really. Um, she kind of came to the conclusion that there weren't really that very many, possibly no podcasts that were completely dedicated to exploring um, the roles of women in science fiction and fantasy and horror. Um, there's quite a lot of other podcasts that do similar things, but nothing that is completely exclusively focused. And we thought that there was such a gap in the in the market for that that it would be a really good idea to get together um, and talk through some of the you know because we've all had rants about various things um, and these it's a kind of like the podcast is a kind of a legitimizes our rants slightly but we try not to keep them rants we try to keep them friendly and you know I'm not I'm, I'm really not misselling it here but yeah it's a really friendly happy fun podcast where we rant about men <laughs> No, it's great. Um, um, it's really nice to talk to Charlotte and Meg, and we have a lot of um, very cool people that come and talk on the show. We had Rihanna Pratchett, which was awesome, and she talked all about the roles of women in um, video games. Uh, we had, um, oh gosh, what's her name? Got so many. We had, oh, I had a really good one with Laura Lamb, who was excellent, um, and Jen Williams, both of whom are obviously really known to this room. Um, Jen Williams, guest of honour at Bristol Con this year? Yes, and if you haven't read her books, definitely read them because they're amazing. And I think both Charlotte and I, whenever someone says, oh, and you know, what recommendation? Oh, Jen, <laughs> she's probably tired of us recommending her books. Um, but yeah, we like to reach out to, you know, women in not just authors, um, you know, women in the publishing industry as well. So it, what, it, what editors are looking for. Um, we also run a kind of uh, bi-weekly, no, bi-monthly um, five questions with a new author to try and, you know, maybe get them a bit more um, kind of visibility because that's one of our, our major topics was discoverability for women in genre which is often still quite challenging um, and we did a we did a um, investigation into kind of publishing newsletters and the fact that you know lots of very major publishers um, wasn't going to name names um, but they are orbits oh, the worst uh, <laughs> um, they're really bad at promoting their female writers their female lists they have female lists um, but they, they don't promote them half as much as their male uh, lists and we don't really understand why so it's just getting people to kind of admit that yeah there may be a problem there might be an unconscious problem um, but why is this the case and what can we do to rectify it and what can we do to talk about it and and what and broaden the dis discussion so, so the uh, the editors of course will say that it's all the fault of you booksellers because you we won't stock books by women but um, <laughs> that's uh, I, i'm not going to get in the middle of that fight yeah. uh, no, it's it's very true. It's very true. <laughs> when, when I said what I said about um, Game of Thrones and getting all of those books in and Joe Abercrombie's, um, yeah, well, it sells. And so our um, head office order a lot in. And then, of course, they take up all of the room in the section. So there's, it, it squishes out kind of all of the... You, you get less diverse sections, basically. Um, but it has changed in recent years. Um, I think it's, it's slightly better in the last year or so because Waterstones did come under quite a bit of pressure from... On the, from it was Twitter led really, but from social media community complaining that you know I think there was a poster up in the sci-fi section of Piccadilly with, which listed the best 100 sci-fi writers and only 13 were women. So, <laughs> which was you know in Waterstones flagship store, which is not really setting a great example. So it has definitely come under the spotlight a bit more. I think there's still a way to go, which is why we we're continuing with the podcast and there's still lots of topics to talk about. Um, 
so yeah, there's a listen free. It's on iTunes and you can find it on SoundCloud. Um, and it's yeah, we we it's a nice kind of mix of discussions and interviews. Um, we've got our latest episode was um, our live at Nine Worlds podcast, uh, which we had. Um, Anna Smith-Spark, who's going to be here next month uh, talking, and RJ Barker, who were both excellent. They were kind of, RJ did the comic relief and Anna did the scary dark stuff. So they were a really good pair. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Anna's shoes can't be seen on a podcast, so I guess she has to be scary otherwise. But, mm, yeah. Anyway, you've, you've got that to come next month, everybody. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, Getting back to the podcast, then, I, I'm a big fan of, of uh, the, the Twelfth Planet podcasts, um, whatever. So, uh, do you have cake on your podcast? Oh, I really wish we did. Um, we usually have wine. <laughs> Charlotte likes gin. In fact, um, the last time I saw her, she gave me some homemade plum gin, which my mother has drunk. <laughs> <laughs> It's really upsetting. I was like, what happened to my plum gin? She went, oh, I thought Laura made that. And I was like, no, no, that was a gift to me from Charlotte. You've drunk it. So, yeah, apparently I'm getting some more. But she said the harvest hasn't been so good this year, so she's thinking of making vodka next year. So, it should be fun. Alrighty, yes, the uh, the uh, Twelfth Planet podcast, of course, is called Galactic Suburbia. I had a brain fade there, which uh, is one of those things that happens when you're absolutely exhausted after two weeks in Finland. But so it goes. <laughs> the Bristol Confringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Confringe page on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe. <laughs>